I wrote uh, my sermon, introduction to my sermon, and actually much of the sermon before the events of this week. And uh, I, I would be remiss to jump right into that and not mention uh, what has been going on. And, 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 and maybe you're here this morning and you're just kind of troubled um, by what happened in uh, a Russian airliner da- downed, um, you know, with all those enemy combatants aboard. And uh, a bomb in, in Beirut didn't get much n- news out by the airport, over 40 killed. Um, and then, most recently in Paris, 129 uh, killed all in the name of Allah. So, um, so what's our response to be? I, I want you to understand that Islam is indeed a wicked an evil religion. I want you to know that it, that as Paul said in First Timothy, that it is, it is inspired, it is satanic, it is inspired by Satan. It is they are following doctrines of demons. But here's what I want you to know: there's a difference between a governmental response and a response for us as believers. You know, I'm not even going to address the governmental response. You know, what our government, another government. I'm not even going to address that. I'll let them figure that out. But here's our response. As followers of Christ, our desire should be to see Muslims, followers of Islam, come to faith in the true God. And we need to be reminded, and it's interesting the text before us today, we need to be reminded that Muslims are not the enemy. They have been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. And our prayer should be to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to pray for them right now. Would you join me? Uh, Father, this has been a troublesome couple of weeks that is actually representative of a a troublesome period of time for some time now. As we have watched um, ISIS and other Islamic terrorists do what they are doing in the name of their false God, Allah, in in, in the way that they have specifically targeted uh, Christians, in the way that brothers and sisters are paying the price for naming the name of Christ. And truth be told, we sit back and we look at this and it causes a little concern or maybe more than that, it causes a little fear. So, Father, I pray first for my brothers and sisters here and brothers and sisters around the world that we would remember the end of the story. We remember that you are God, there is no other, and that you have not been taken by surprise, that everything is unfolding just as you said. And then would you help us as followers of Christ to, to desire to see a lost people, no matter what false religion they name, that our desire would be to see them saved. I know that, at least I know, the internal conflict, the internal battle, you know, that on the one hand says, let's bomb them, and then on the other hand, it's not, it's not a Christian response. Although I want to see them. I want to see them saved. 
I want to see them turn from their sin. I want to see them gloriously brought into the kingdom of Christ. So do your, accomplish your purposes in their lives, even through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. I once heard a, uh, a story, it was an illustration actually on the radio that I shared with you actually a number of years ago, but it bears repeating. It went, it went something like this. The, the, the nationally known speaker said, it is as if all through the Old Testament, God and the devil were playing a chess match. God would choose a man, make his move, and the devil would then counter. He too would choose a man, make his move, attempting to counter everything that God did. Move, counter, move, move, counter, move. Through the, new, through the Old Testament. By the time we get to the end of that, it's pretty much a draw. In fact, there are 400 silent years as someone pondered the next move. <laughs> it was apparently God's turn because the New Testament opened with the birth of Jesus Christ. You understand I'm quoting an illustration that I heard on the radio. But the devil chose a man and countered. He tried to have Herod kill Jesus, then there was this great battle in the wilderness when the devil himself faced God himself, tempting Jesus three times back and forth, move, counter, move, this chess match, went until finally the crucifixion, when at the cross the devil said, check. The demons were throwing a party, Jesus was dead, it appeared as if the devil had won the match, but then on Easter Sunday morning, Jesus arose from the dead in glorious resurrection, and God said, checkmate. Sounds great, but there are so many problems with that analogy, I hardly know where to begin, but I shall try. First, let me be absolutely clear, God and the devil are not Equals. Let me say it again just in case you missed it. God and Satan are not equals. Where do we ever get that? Second, it is not as if they are playing some cosmic game. Third, the end of the match was and is never in question. God is not in heaven pondering His next move, trying to figure out what Satan is doing. Fourth, and most critically important, the crucifixion was not the devil's move. It was God's. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was God who would crush and bruise His own Son. He would see the travail of His soul, and He Himself would be satisfied. God was pouring out His wrath on the sin of humanity when Jesus bore our sins in His body on the cross. Make no mistake about it, the cross was not an attempt by the devil to destroy the Son of God. It was the apex of history. It was the consummation of what everything always pointed to and always points back to. It was God's move. In fact, when Peter, and we'll see this when we get to Mark chapter 8, when Peter decided one day that he would try to 
prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem and, and to die. You're not going to the cross, not while I'm alive, Peter said. Jesus looked at him and said, what? Get behind me, Satan. Meaning any attempt to prevent Jesus from dying on a cross was inspired by Satan. You see, the cross was and always has been the culmination of the eternal plan of God to provide redemption for humankind. That analogy, again, from a nationally known speaker, I could say his name. Any of you would know him. I'm not trying to disparage him. Typically, what he says is pretty good, sometimes not. As I listened to it on the radio, it was apparently live or, you know, it was recorded live, and there were lots of hoots and hollers from the audience as he told the story. And as I was listening to it, I about crashed and wrecked my car. Are you kidding me? And it illustrates our confusion about the forces of evil and our confusion about this particular topic robs God of His singular and due glory. Let me say it again. God and the devil or Satan or the adversary, the accuser, Beelzebub or Beelzebul, the prince of demons, the serpent, call him whatever you want to call him. God and the devil are not equals, never have been, never will be. There is one God. There is no other. He has no peers, no rivals, no equals. There is none like him, no one to compare to his glory and majesty, his, his knowledge and wisdom, his power and his strength. There is one God. There is no other. Isaiah says it, says it like this, to whom God is speaking, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. Go outside, just glance up and look at all of the stars. Who created them? The one who leads forth their host by number and he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. You understand what he just said? I know it's a big thing today. You can go and, and you can pay and and you can name a star for like your girlfriend. Don't do it. God's already named them. He doesn't need your help. In Isaiah 40 to 46, God is trying to get one particular point across. I am God and there is no other. Isaiah chapter 46, he says it like this. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me? That's supposed to be a rhetorical question. That we would be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, and they bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it up on their shoulder and carry it. They have to. It's a hunk of metal. They set it in its place, and there it stands. It does not move from its place, though... One may cry to it, it cannot answer, it cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured, recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. God sits in the heavens and he does whatever he wants. And you sit here and go, then where was he in Paris? Where, where was he in Indianapolis when a burglar breaks into a home and kills a pastor's wife, pregnant? 
Where was he in Oregon when the terrorist said, if you're a Christian, you die? There is none like God. There is no other. And that includes the forces of evil. It is not as if God sits in the heavens, wringing His hands, worried about Satan's next move. He knows it altogether, and Satan could do nothing outside of God's sovereign care and control. Read the book of Job. I have said it this way before, and I will say it again. Satan is God's Satan, created to do his bidding. In our continuing study of the gospel according to Matthew, one of Mark's main purposes is to proclaim that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the very, the very Son of God. And as the Son of God, He is unparalleled and unequaled. Jesus is going to demonstrate His supreme, unmatched, glorious authority over things like sickness and, and sin and, and death and, and the forces of nature. And today, in this first recorded miracle in the gospel, even His authority over the forces of evil. And so as you look at world events that are transpiring today and you begin to wonder, what in the world is going on? Where are you? I want you to understand there is a God, there is no other, and none of this has caught Him by surprise. Look at the text with me. Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28 say this. They, that is Jesus and His disciples, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then, right there in the, in the synagogue, in the place of worship, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him immediately. The news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. My brothers and sisters, we are supposed to read this and be amazed. More than that, we're supposed to be wowed, overwhelmed, awestruck by this Jesus. Who can say the things that he says? Who can do the things that he does? This is the first of four very specific exorcisms in the book that we're going to read about where he demonstrates his supreme authority over evil. Even evil in our day. There are going to be nine healing miracles demonstrating his, his authority over sickness, even yours. Five miracles, nature miracles. Even things like Katrina and Sandy. Throughout this book, the question keeps resounding in our minds. It, it's written in verse 27, who is this, or what is this? Better, who is this Jesus? Over and over, Mark will say things like, they were amazed, they were terrified, they were frightened, they were completely astounded, they were utterly astonished. There is no one like him. 
And, and, and because there was no one like him, you need not fear. Fear what? Anything. Sickness, death, sin, the forces of nature, the forces of evil that are all about us. There's no one like him. The outline of the text is going to say that there's no one like him in his teaching and there's no one like him in his power. And so whatever you have faced this week and whatever emotions that have embroiled you this week as you ask the question, God, where are you? I, I want you to understand we serve a God who, who sits on the throne. None of this has taken him by surprise. There is one God, there is no other. Verse 21 tells us they, that is Jesus and his new disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, went into Capernaum. Capernaum is literally the village of Nahum. It was a, it was a rather large city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, a, a, a fishing Town. It was on a, an important trade route from the Mediterranean over to Damascus. Estimates place it as high as 10,000 um, in, uh, inhabitants, such that it had its own Roman garrison and a rather large synagogue. In fact, there are ruins there today. You can see the inset on the, uh, on the screen of a fourth century synagogue, and they've dug below that. And below that, there are what many, most think are the remains of the synagogue of Jesus' day. It appears to be the home, Capernaum appears to be the home at this point of Peter and Andrew because they were fishermen, and it becomes the base of operations for Jesus' Galilean ministry. On this particular Sabbath, Jesus entered into the synagogue. We need to remember that the Jews counted a day from evening until the next um, evening, so the Sabbath actually ex extended from Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. This particular, the rest of this chapter pretty much covers a period of time from Saturday through Sunday, a 24-hour period. Think of it as a day in the life of, of Jesus. But on Saturday, they would go to the local synagogue, and in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 adult Jewish males, no problem with that in Capernaum. Jesus enters this synagogue, and began to teach. This, this was not unusual. The leaders of the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue, would often invite uh, visiting rabbis to read from the Scripture and then to comment on that. By, by this time, while it's very early in, in Mark's gospel, we understand that Jesus has been at it for some time now, six months, maybe up to um, a year. Um, he, he had already been invited to read some Scripture and comment in his own hometown synagogue in, in Nazareth, and we know that he read there from Isaiah chapter 61. Undoubtedly, he, as he comes in, he's invited. He, he, he's known, and he's invited to read and teach. We, we don't know this time what he read in the synagogue. We don't know what he taught. In fact, it's interesting to note that, that Mark has less of Jesus' teaching than the other um, three Gospels. But he, calls him, he says that he taught or he calls him teacher more than the other three Gospels. 
And from that, we understand that in Mark, the person of the teacher is more important than the content of the teaching. He, he is trying to impress us with this Jesus. Here, Mark tells us that they were amazed at his teaching. I, I, I love that part. They were amazed at his teaching. <laughs> you see, I know Christianity has been around so long, or we've been around it for, for so long that we are, well, we're often no longer amazed. But we should be. Even people who don't accept Jesus as the Christ or the, or, or the Son of God have to admit that this guy's life and his teaching changed, changed the world. He said things like, like nobody else. And again, we don't know exactly what he said. Likely something had to do with the, the kingdom of God being present. Like, that's what he said a little bit earlier. He came preaching the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the gospel. Don't miss that. Jesus shows up and proclaims the coming of the kingdom of God. It's here. And the kingdom of God comes into direct conflict with the dominion of Satan. Jesus had already scored a major victory over Satan himself in the temptations, and now he's going to do it again by defeating one of Satan's demons. So again, while we don't know exactly what he taught, we do see that they were amazed because his teaching was with authority and not like the scribes. We're not sure exactly what that means. The scribes, who are they? Well, they were originally considered experts in law, and since Israel was founded on the Mosaic law, they became experts at the interpretation and application of religious Law, and they saw it as their responsibility by this time to guard the oral interpretations of, of the law that had been handed down to them. It became known as the tradition of the elders, and that's, that's, that's my job. You see, it, didn't, it was still oral. It didn't become written down until about 200 A.D. when it became written down in what is called the Mishnah. If you've heard that, that's the tradition of the elders. Now, while parties, religious parties existed like the Pharisees and the and the, and the Sadducees, uh, the scribes were actually a professional vocation. And as a professional, you could belong to any religious party that you wanted to, but most scribes belonged to the party of the Pharisees. They were highly respected. They had special seats in the synagogue. And people, when, when they walked in, people would, would stand up. If you're walking down the street and a scribe's coming, you would defer to them. You would get out of their way. They are consistently grouped with the chief priests and the elders as those who opposed Jesus. In fact, uh, in every instance but one where they are mentioned in Mark, as in Mark chapter 12, they are opposing Jesus. In chapter 2, for example, they will oppose Him for forgiving sin. <laughs> who can do that? Who can forgive sin but God? Exactly. They'll oppose Him for dining with sinners. Chapter 3, they will accuse him of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In chapter 7, they'll, they'll oppose him for not following the tradition of the elders. You see, they were the ones who were supposed to safeguard that. They will join then in the opposition against Jesus to have him arrested, tried, and, and condemned. I, I need you to understand, though, when Jesus was teaching not as the scribes, with His own authority, the, the, the scribes' teaching and authority was derivative. What do I mean? 
Again, we see their job was to guard the tradition of the elders that had been handed down to them. They didn't have any new teaching. They didn't even have any new authority. Their teaching and authority came from those who came before them, and it was their job to uphold and guard it. But Jesus shows up here, and he doesn't quite quote the traditions. In fact, he often opposes them. His teaching is fresh. His teaching is new. It's, it's consistent with the Old Testament, unlike the tradition of the elders. And so they began to oppose them. He would, he would often oppose popularly held beliefs, beliefs about the Sabbath, beliefs about other Mosaic law, beliefs about marriage, and particularly divorce. He would often say something like this, you have heard it said, meaning you have heard the tradition of the elders, but I say unto you, and he appeals to his own authority. What is this? This is a new teaching. We've never heard anything like this. And as they begin to listen, it's new and it's fresh and, and something in their heart of heart at the beginning, at least, tells them that it's right. They're amazed. No doubt some repented and, and believed. And, and I would say the same thing um, to you today. The, the teaching of Jesus and the teaching about Jesus in the Scripture is true. And if you will give it a fair hearing, if, if you will look at it and Receive it for what it is, this teaching of Jesus. I, I promise it will amaze you too. You'll be like the two on the road to Emmaus, who after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to them and began to explain to them why Jesus, the, the Christ must suffer and, and be buried and, and, and raise again. And, and then when they realize it's Jesus, he disappears. And they look at each other and say, did not our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? I promise if you'll give the scripture a, a fair hearing, you too will be amazed by this Jesus. They were amazed with his teaching. Who is this? Whose who's teaching is not like the scribes? There's, there's no one like him in this teaching, but Jesus was not done amazing them, which brings us to the second point. There's no one like him in his, in his power. Because you see, just then, there was a man in the synagogue. Can you believe that? There would be, there would be a, a, a demon-possessed man right there in a place of worship. Hmm. A man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Now, now, Mark uses that phrase, you see, almost as often as he uses the word demon. In fact, he uses the word interchangeably. So we are to understand an unclean spirit is, in fact, a demon. And this unclean, but he uses the phrase unclean spirit because it's to be differentiated with the Holy Spirit that we met just a few verses earlier who filled Jesus. And Mark is drawing an intentional contrast. Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. This man with an unclean spirit. These two kingdoms are coming into conflict. Guess who wins? Now, about this time, you may be sitting there thinking, uh, time out, uh, wait, wait, wait just a minute. I mean, do we really believe in, in demons and demonic activity and oppression and, and all of that stuff, you know, spin our head around and spit out some pea soup? Do we, do we really believe, you know, that, that stuff? I mean, we're in the 21st century now. Salem witch trials and all that are things of the superstitious past. We're much smarter now, and we understand that what they saw as demonic activity, you know, like possession, was really mental illness, right? That is one of two extremes I believe that we need to avoid. 
You see, because we believe the Bible to be God's inerrant word, we do believe in Satan, we do believe in demons, and we do believe in demonic activity, such as things like demonic possession and oppression. Yes, I also believe that there is such a thing as mental illness. And through the years, no doubt, well-meaning Christians have misdiagnosed mental illness as demonic activity. Conversely, I have no doubt that we have misdiagnosed demonic activity as mental illness. We need to avoid the extreme of denying the existence of demons. The Scripture is clear that demons are fallen angels, those who followed Satan in his rebellion against God and were cast out of heaven, and they became to this day opponents of God and everything good. You see, we as believers believe in a real personage named Satan, who in the serpent succeeded in tempting Eve, and Adam followed, plunging all of humanity into sin. We believe that that same prince of demons tempted Jesus, seeking to distract and destroy Him and His mission of, of redeeming fallen humanity. And we believe that those fallen angels now serve Satan and His purposes to destroy God and His purposes and His people, His people. So we remember... We remember that Paul said our battle is not, as I said at the beginning, our battle is not against flesh and blood, i.e. people who are demonically possessed or oppressed or even demonically influenced following doctrines of demons and false religions. Our battle is not against people who follow false religions. Our battle is against him who has taken people captive to do his will. Our battle is against the demonic forces of evil. So this demon-possessed man in the synagogue cries out. Don't, don't miss that. This is always the response of demons to the presence of Christ, this, the, the Son of God. We're going we're gonna to see again four times that the demons encounter Jesus. We'll, we'll see this cosmic conflict going on. On Because, you see, Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God near, which was in direct conflict with the satanic kingdom of this world. We're going to see a number of skirmishes, but Jesus always wins to the present day. See, it doesn't, it doesn't often look like that. I'm going to suggest it's because we don't always see the full picture. Satan and his forces often fall down in the presence of Christ because while there is a cosmic battle going on, it is not a chess match. God is God. Jesus is the Son of God and God in the flesh. There is no other. They know that, and they fall prostrate before Him. So this demon cries out, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? This was actually a Hebraism, a colloquial way of saying, leave us, leave us alone, mind your own business. Have you come to destroy us? They knew who he was. And they knew that he could, in fact, destroy them. 
Now, what, what does this demon mean when he says us? I mean, we can rule out that it's me and this demon-possessed man. He's there to destroy him anyway. Two possibilities. Us is that there's more than one demon inhabiting this man. We're going to see that actually happen in Mark chapter 5 when there's a, uh, there's a legion of demons in that man will save that till then. The other possibility is that he's talking about the, the, the forces of evil, generally speaking. Have you come to destroy us? And of course, the answer is yes. Jesus did come to destroy the works of the devil, which will include all of the forces of evil. The kingdom of God had come that would destroy evil, the satanic kingdom of this world, and destroy it. Make no mistake about it. Destroy it. He did at the cross. Because the cross was not Satan's move, it was God's move. And he destroyed them. And they are now roundly defeated. But they will not meet their final and full defeat until the end of time, at which point they will be cast into the lake of fire. Notice the next sentence, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is the question that Mark is seeking to answer for us. Who is this? This Jesus. The demons, whenever they came into his presence, they knew. James even tells us that the demons believe. That is, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God and they did what he came to do and they have the sense to tremble. They have to. Because there is no one like our God and so from this most unlikely of sources, we get an answer, a declaration. Jesus is the Holy One of God. This is a clear declaration of the person and deity of, of Jesus. He is the Christ from the mouth of a demon. He is the very Son of God, the Holy One of God. He must do God's bidding. Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet. Literally, that is be muzzled or, or put a muzzle on it. We, we don't say it that way today. We say, and every time I say this, I get in trouble, but it, it's actually his way of saying, shut up, okay? And then some parent comes up to me and says, you know, I always tell my kids not to say that, and then you said it, and they say, Pastor Scott, no, actually, Jesus said it. He's going to say the same thing to a storm a little bit later. Be quiet, be muzzled, and the storm will lay at his feet. It must. Now, why does he command the demon to be quiet? I mean, think about it. At this point, the demon had, had just declared the person of Christ. And he, you are the Holy One of God. So why is he saying be quiet? It's called, in the book of Mark, it's called the messianic secret. Over and over, Jesus will tell demons and people that he has healed, and even his own disciples who, who have seen his work, seen his miracles. I need you to be quiet. Why? Because it was not yet time for him to be revealed. He did not need some premature movement to make him king. He had come, you see, to be served, uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He had come to be put to death, and when the time came for him to do that, he would do that, and not before. I'll go when I say I go, not you. He says further to the demon, come out of him, <laughs> and, the, and the demon had to, God had spoken. You see, at this particular time in history, all the way to the present day, there are lots of bizarre accounts of exorcisms outside of the New Testament. 
But Jesus does not use spells. He does not use incantations. He does not use rituals. He does not, you know, strike his heels together three times and say there's no place like home. He doesn't do any of that. He simply commands and they obey. They have to because he is God and there is no other. Yes, the... As is often the case in exorcism in the New Testament, the demon threw the possessed man into a convulsion, one last destructive act. Then he cried out, but come out, he did. There is none equal to our God. When he speaks, even demons obey. A little fearful today? There is no one like our God. Earlier I suggested, if you were paying attention, that denying the existence of demons was one extreme and you're wondering what the other one is, here it is. The other extreme is to avoid, the other extreme to avoid is what we often do and that is to see a demon behind every tree or under every rock. In other words, to give Satan and his demons too much power. Somehow we kind of get this idea in our mind that, de that the demons and the Satan can read my mind. Where, where's that in the Bible? We get the idea that Satan is omnipresent. No, he's not. There's only one who's omnipresent. That he's somehow omniscient. No, he's not. There's only one who knows everything. We see here when they come into the presence of the Holy One of God, they cry out for mercy because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We need not fear the forces of evil, no matter how they are embodied, even in false religions called Islam. Our God is greater. He has no equal, none to compare. Let me address a few other thoughts as we prepare to close this morning. Yes, there is such a thing as demon possession, and I have had many occasion for people to ask me, is it possible for a Christian, is it possible for me to be demon-possessed? Listen to me very carefully. I am unaware of any spirit-indwelt Christian in the Scripture who was demon-possessed. None. I don't believe it can happen. I believe that we can be harassed. I believe that we can be uh, oppressed by demons. I believe that they can unleash the fiery darts of the evil one against us. Peter tells us that our enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, prowls around seeking someone to de devour. The devil is real, but when he comes into the very presence of God, he must submit. And I want to remind you that you are indwelt by the very same Holy Spirit that indwelt Jesus. I don't think there's room for the Holy Spirit and Satan in the same place. In fact, James tells us to resist the devil, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so, well, intention teachers, preachers have come up with all kinds of ways to resist the devil. They, they speak out against them very publicly. They do battle. They want to take him on. They want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil. I'll take you on. Come, no, I do not do that. I am just fine with Satan ignoring me. I'm not powerful enough. But the God who is in me and the person of the Holy Spirit can deal with him. And so the very next verse in James, when he's, after he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, he goes on to tell us how. How? How do we do it? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
That's how you beat him. Not by focusing on the devil, but by focusing on Christ. You see, we take up the shield of faith in God. We take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we do battle by drawing near to him. And when we are near to him, Satan has no interest in being close. I believe that. So while one extreme is to avoid, or one extreme to avoid is deny their existence, another is to seek to engage them in battle ourselves. We draw near to God and allow Him to do battle. We don't deny, nor need we fear. Our God is great. There is none like Him. Verse 27 says, they were all amazed, so they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And how was that authority seen? Not just in the things that he said, but in what he did. Power like no other. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him because they must. As a result, immediately the news about him spread everywhere in all the surrounding district of Galilee. What? What is this? Better, who is this? And Mark gives us a wonderful answer through an unclean spirit because they must do his bidding. Our job as believers is to spread the news about him. There is no longer any messianic secret. We are to spread the truth of who he is and what he came to do in the midst of great cost. But I want to remind you that there is no God like our God. There is no Savior like our Savior. This is Jesus, the Christ, the very Son of God. And so you need not fear. In the midst of everything that's going on in the world, in the midst of everything that's going on in your world, no fear. The very God of the universe lives in you. Stand for